Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. This week, we pick up on the episode we shared last week. Last week, you remember, we heard the first half of Bishop Barron's talk on John Henry Newman's great book titled The Grammar of Ascent. This week, we're going to listen to the second half of that talk. Now, in the last episode, I mentioned why this is so timely, because in just a couple weeks here, on October 13th, John Henry Newman will be canonized by Pope Francis. That means he'll be formally recognized as a saint. Bishop Barron will be there in Rome covering the canonization and sharing behind-the-scenes photos and videos on social media. And then just a few days later, he's been invited to go to England and speak at Oxford University to deliver a talk on John Henry Newman and the new evangelization. We're planning to live stream that talk and share it, but I mention it here because the talk will focus primarily on the grammar of ascent. So hearing today's episode will get you up to speed and and give you a lot of background information for that big lecture Bishop Barron is sharing at Oxford. So be sure to listen to the first half. If you missed that, you'll definitely need to hear that first. But once you've listened to last week's episode, you're ready for this week's episode, the second half of Bishop Barron's talk on the grammar of ascent. Enjoy. Now, you know, go a few decades later when C.S. Lewis makes arguments for God's existence based upon the Tao or this universal moral sensibility, you're not far from Newman's style of argumentation here. That conscience is one of the most immediate demonstrations, if you want, of God's existence, and it has the advantage of being real, not just notional. Contrast this, for example, to one of Thomas's arguments, which are persuasive, it seems to me, especially the argument from contingency, but it wouldn't have the real quality of the argument from conscience that Newman uses. Um, I think he's really right about this, too, that the instinct of conscience, if you want, is given to us from the beginning. Even the merest children have it. Um, Watching my nieces and nephew grow up over the past many years, I'm always amazed at that. What's the one thing kids have, and they do not have to be taught this? A keen sense of justice, don't they? Every kid does. And kids are bundles of of egotism. I mean, Augustine was right about that. They are. They're just bundles. That's got to be sort of knocked out of them. But every kid, it's true, though, isn't it? I mean, the sort of romanticism about children is goofy. Children are kind of bundles of of self-regard, and they have to be trained out of that. But every child has a keen sense of justice, of right and wrong, of fair and unfair. And it's not taught to them. It's almost naive to say you're teaching that to them. It's inherent in the structure of their moral consciousness. There's conscience, you know. Here's Newman's uh, concluding quote. Conscience is a connecting principle, therefore, between the creature and his creator. And the firmest hold of theological truth is gained by habits of personal religion having to do with conscience. That's good, isn't it? If you want, really want to grab people to level the heart, appeal to this principle in them. And, you know, read someone like Christopher Hitchens, who's you know, the great atheist today. Um, Hitchens has a very powerful moral consciousness. He uses it all the time against Catholicism. But see, what is that? Where's that coming from? It can't just be his little ruminations. Otherwise, you could just dismiss it. Like, you know, I like uh, a blueberry pie. You like uh, lemon meringue pie. If it's just a, a, simply a matter of personal taste, it would have no um, uh, cogency. But the very fact that Hitchens can come with such clarity and such confidence 
at the level of a moral critique means he's got this, means he has this, some sense of, of right and wrong. That's Newman's argument. Okay, um, that's a little quick overview of a first part of the Grammar of Ascent. Let me now move into part two, which is kind of where he's going with this whole complicated argument. The first chapter of the second part of the grammar is a dialogue between Newman and John Locke. Now, I don't want to paint Locke the way I painted Heidegger. I mean, Newman loved Locke in many ways, admired Locke very deeply, and, and, and stood in many ways in that British empirical tradition. But with this central claim of Locke, Newman stands uh, uh, in opposition. In his writings on epistemology, Locke opined that assent should always be strictly correlated to the quality of inference. That's a, a way to state it abstractly. Assent, when you say, I agree, that should be correlated tightly to the quality of inference. Here's what he means. You have a clinching argument. Then your assent should be unconditional. You got a pretty good argument, not clinching, but pretty good, your assent should be eh, strong, but not absolute. You got a so-so argument, your assent should be so-so. Got a bad argument, you should give a little tiny bit of assent. You got no argument at all, you shouldn't give any assent at all. For Locke, it was just common sense, right? Tie assent to inference. Here's one thing he says, quote, it is not only illogical, but immoral. And there's the voice of the Enlightenment, by the way but immoral to carry our assent above the evidence that a proposition is true. To have a surplusage, there's a word that has not survived to the present day, has it? To have a surplusage of assurance beyond the degrees of that evidence. There is Locke, right? Evidence and assent, tightly correlated. Newman stands athwart that position. That's what Newman's against. And see, that is the ground of what he calls liberalism in matters of religion. Because now you say the existence of God, the divinity of Jesus, the real presence in the Eucharist, uh, the immaculate conception of Mary. Well, can you mount really convincing arguments for all these that John Locke would find persuasive? Clearly not. Well, therefore what? Therefore, your ascent should be kind of low level. If you want to be religious, that's your affair, but your ascent should be kind of low level. No, no, says Newman. Even though I can't come up with a clinching argument along Cartesian or Lockean lines, nevertheless, my assent to these things is unconditional. That's the argument now he's going to try to make. I bet a lot of us would instinctually agree with Locke on this. It seems commonsensical, doesn't it? And in fact, don't we kind of feel it in our bones that there's something wrong with our giving assent beyond the evidentiary um, support? Okay, now here's how Newman begins the argument. He says, we give unconditional assent all the time to things for which we have a, 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 not a requisite inferential support. For example, to the, quote, furniture of the mind. It's a lovely term. You know how the furniture, like now in my little apartment over here, I'm used to it. When I first arrived there in that apartment, I was falling over and knocking into things. I didn't know where things were. Where's the bathroom and, you know... But now I'm used to it, so I just kind of move effortlessly around all the furniture in that apartment. Well, there's furniture of the mind. He means the full range of basic beliefs, assumptions, convictions, 
that maybe we once had arguments for, but we've long forgotten them. Maybe someone brought forward evidence, but we've long forgotten it. Maybe it's based on lots of cumulative experience of our own, but we don't attend to it. Yet, yet, we give absolute, unconditioned assent to it. Now, I'll give you some examples. Uh, We all walked over here tonight to this room, assuming the laws of physics and gravity were in place, right? Do I have epideictic certitude that they are? Of course not. Maybe they were suspended between dinner and here. Maybe gravity no longer obtains. Maybe when I step on the ground, I'll go right through it. Maybe if I take a step, I'll fly up into space. I mean, I can't prove any of that. What's it based on? But long cumulative experience. I, I never really even aver to any of that inferential support. But I've given unhesitating, unconditioned assent to that proposition. Right? That's part of the furniture of the mind. Again, Ascent may fail even though the reasons for it are unassailed, even though the inferences upon which it was partially based remain intact. You see, now he's flipping it around. Sometimes I, I change my mind on something. I no longer assent to it, even though the arguments that were used are still in place and no one has really assailed them, but my mind has changed. How come? We can find our minds changed due to events in our personal lives, due to the cross word or critique of another. Do you ever have that? That you've got something really clear in your mind and then your thesis director looks at you funny or, or frowns at you as you lay out that argument. And that can change your mind, can it? It's something you find yourself no longer assenting to that proposition. Due to the company that we keep, Newman says. How British that is. And I mean that in a really good way. I mean how kind of empirical that is. The company you keep can affect your ascent to things. I'm around people that don't ascent to that, and so I start not ascending to it, or vice versa. One of his great lines from his sermons is, um, good and bad men consider very different things probable. Interesting, isn't it? What am I? Shouldn't you just objectively, everyone that has a mind should say, that's probable, that isn't. No, no, good and bad men hold very different things to be probable. See, because it, your, your whole ethos has been formed uh, differently. Shifts in ascent, despite no shift in the argumentative base. That's his point. Now flip it around again. Sometimes despite strong and convincing arguments for a position, ascent is sometimes never given. Quote, we sometimes find men loud in their admiration of truths which they never profess. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? Loud in their admiration. They can tout the arguments for something, but they don't profess it. They actually don't assent to it. What plays a role here? Prejudice. Someone might see the convincing nature of an argument, but still wait years before assenting to it, because all kinds of personal blocks and so on. Again, think of Chesterton I mentioned last time. In 1908, writes Orthodoxy, this high, high, very Catholic book. It's not until 1922 that he assents fully to it. It can take time. Here's a nice quote. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. <laughs> it's right, isn't it? If you've browbeaten someone into seeing your argument. He might accept the argument, but not assent. But not see, Now, see, that is what he, what he saw in, at Lake Geneva. Certitude's one thing. Ascent is something else. They're different. And ascent has something to do with this, this 
whole conjuries of influences. It's never reducible to its inferential support. Okay? So the upshot of all this is what I just said. Ascent is other than inference, not reducible to inference. Um, here's some, some examples he gives now, famous ones. We believe we live on a global planet covered with tracts of land and sea. We believe that England is an island, that there are great cities that go by the names of London, Paris, and New York. We believe effortlessly that we had parents. We believe that we can't live without food. We believe that one day we will die. But in none of these cases can we muster anything even vaguely like the cogito. <laughs> nothing even vaguely like Cartesian or Lockean uh, proof. But Newman might say to Descartes and Locke, I bet for a second you don't hesitate to give unconditional support or assent to those propositions. He says, certitude is a condition of the mind that's a bit like having a good conscience. It's a neat comparison. That when you're certain of something, it's, it's like this, it's a feeling of resting comfortably. Now, where's it coming from? Not just arguments, but lots of other things. Okay, now let me just uh, play this out a little bit more. I'm skipping a lot of, lot of the detail of it, but um, let me cut to the chase here with uh, what he calls informal inference. Newman says, when it comes to assent, formal inference is usually at play. Formal inference is argument. It's a syllogism. It's Aristotle's demonstration, or it's Locke's uh, marshalling of evidence and so on. That plays a role, typically, in our assent. That does have something to say. But beyond formal inference, there is what he calls informal inference. And now again, for preachers and evangelists and teachers, I think it's a very important uh, insight. Supplementing the syllogism, which always remains, he thinks, open-ended, inconclusive, indecisive. Supplementing that is this informal inference. What is it? We come to assent through an extremely subtle indeed invisible or largely unconscious process of weighing and accumulating converging probabilities. And there's the heart of the book, really, with that line. We come to ascent through an extremely subtle, indeed invisible or largely unconscious process of weighing and accumulating converging probabilities. Consciously or not, I tend to muster a whole slew of arguments, yes, but also impressions, experiences, hunches, intuitions, the approval of people that I admire, the disapproval of people I don't admire, and I take all these elements in a largely unconscious process. I recognize each one of them as having the effect of probability. Not apodictic, but probable. But my mind, consciously and unconsciously, brings them together. It sees them as converging probabilities. And this tends to lead the mind to ascent. Here's a, a famous example he gives. Um, whether England is an island. Now, people quarrel. England's on an island. Say Great Britain or that, that island with Scotland and Wales on it. That thing. That thing's an island. How do I know that? Well, I don't have a Cartesian argument for it. 
It seems obvious. I don't have a Lockean clinching demonstration for it. How do I know it? Here's Newman's answer. I've been taught from childhood that England is an island. It's been so described on every map I've ever seen. Everyone we know of has spoken of England, who has spoken of England, assumes its insularity. The entire history of Great Britain implies it and assumes it. In our own explorations of England, this presumption has been borne out. We see none of these is convincing in itself, but they have this power of, of conviction because they are converging in the same direction. Why am I convinced that I will die one day, Newman asks. Why do I not hesitate for a moment to assent to that proposition? Why do I give it unconditioned assent? Not because I got a clinching Lockean argument. Obviously, I don't. But because people have told me from the time of my childhood that I will one day die. I see the process of decline and aging. I know that people die. I've never met or heard of anyone who's attained, say, 130 years. My good sense, my common sense, my living reasoning thus informs me on the basis of these converging probable arguments that one day I will die. And I don't spend one second fretting over it. I give that unconditioned assent. Newman says, it's in this, in this it was meant by the judge who when asked for his advice by a friend on being called to important duties which were new to him, bade him always lay down the law boldly, but never give his reasons. For his decision was likely to be right, but his reasons sure to be unsatisfactory. <laughs> He's driving it. The judge makes this decision. It's probably largely based on unconscious elements that he would not be able, even if he wanted to, to isolate and to identify. What is the sense that allows us to do this? What is the, the sense that brings these converging probabilities together and, listen, moves the mind from formal inference through informal inference to assent? That's what Newman calls, and he coins the term, the illative sense. I've read that he would have said elative in his British. He made the word up, you know, from ferro ferre tuli latus in Latin to carry, right? The illative sense carries you from formal inference, syllogism, through this process of informal inference to the point of assent. It's like a I don't want to say gut feeling, that's the wrong term. It's a sense or intuition of converging probability. What's the sanction or justification of the illative sense? It is basically, says Newman, the fact that we must accept ourselves as we are, not as we'd hope to be ideally. That's a really cool insight and very British, and I'd say very Catholic too. See, Beginning with Descartes, and you see in all the moderns, there's a kind of angelism in them. Isn't there? I, I want to be absolutely certain. Well, you know, pal, we just don't get a lot of that around here. We just don't get a lot of apodictic certitude in life. So what does Descartes have to do? He has to sharply divorce 
the res cogitans, the inner self, from the res extensa, the, the outer self. And he privileges the one over the other, etc. What you get is a kind of angelism. Newman is saying the warrant for the illative sense is we got to think with what we have, the way the mind actually works, not the way we might like it to work. Angels, he says, do intuit with this absolute clarity. Angels don't have to reason the way we do. Thomas says that, right? I mean, we reason, we premise, minor premise, conclusion, drawing this from that. Angels don't do that. Angels just get it. They just see immediately. Well, see, Newman, I think, is, is even more um, sensitive to the rough ground of life. That's an Aristotelian term, by the way, back to the rough ground. How do you know things? You know them by kind of crawling over them. Wittgenstein picked this up, too, in the 20th century. There's been a lot of studies of Newman and Wittgenstein, which are interesting, because the idea of the language game, you know, what's close to the way people actually talk and actually think, and not these Cartesian abstractions. That's the illative sense. There's a law written in our nature that we must think according to this law, just as there's a moral law written in us. We must follow our conscience. So he's critical of all idealist attempts, be they Platonic, Cartesian, or Hegelian, to raise human knowing up to some quote-unquote higher level. There is no higher level for us. This is the way we actually think. What's the nature of the illative sense? Newman says, I think really helpfully, the illative sense is the intellectual equivalent of phronesis or right moral judgment, prudence, right, in Aquinas. What's prudence? But it's that feel for the rough ground. It's when you're in C2, you're in the situation. You've got your moral principles, but now how do they apply hic et nunc? Right now, what must I do? That's the intellectual virtue of prudentia for Aquinas, right? Phronesis in the, in the uh, Aristotle. Well, the illative sense is like that, is in this situation, here and now, faced with this proposition, is it yes or no? Argument will take me to a certain point, but not all the way. I need this illative sense to carry me to real assent. Um, okay. Now, what I want to do, I got two minutes. I'll, I want to make a couple of applications to um, preaching and evangelization. Uh, first, notional and real. Preachers, pre think of Churchill. Remember Churchill when you're preaching. You want to move people to action. Think real assent. Like, you know, the, the other day uh, when I used that line, I got it from N.T. Wright, and he heard it from this Anglican bishop about, you know, when Paul preached, they had riots, and when I preached, they served me tea. Well, the good thing about that line is it's very real ascent. It's something very, very particular. You can, get, you can see it. You can taste the tea that they're serving you, you know. Is let that be a, a paramount in your preaching as you're trying to move people to action. More to it, you're trying to move people to assent. See, a mistake that we can make, I think, as preachers is, hey, I got a great argument. I've thought this thing through, and this is a really, really finely crafted argument. Well, la-di-da, if no one is moved by it, you know what I'm saying, is that our job as preachers and evangelists is to move people to assent. We want them to agree with us. And now there's Aristotle's rhetoric, right? And I think I've told you, Aristotle, the three things you need, and it's very helpful. You need logos in a good speech. It's got to have reason, right? You've got to have pathos, he says. If, if you're not worked up about this, why should they get worked up about it? Uh, people only listen to an excited man, Aristotle said. He's dead right about that. 
If you can't show excitement, why would they listen? The third thing you need, though, is ethos, he said, which is character, you know? And so um, you're trying to move people to agree with you, to, to, to assent to what you're saying. What's involved? Argument to be sure, but much more than that. Appeal widely to the body and to the imagination, to experience, to um, hunch and to intuition, using examples, using the saints, using beauty as well as truth, all of that, I think is part of Newman's uh, insight. Just a, a last observation. Remember the movie um, Juno? It was out a couple years ago. It's a really good movie, I thought. And it's, you know, it's a pro-life movie. And people argue about that. But you know, about a young woman who decides to have the baby when you know, e- even her parents would have supported her if she decided to have an abortion. Remember, though, there's a pivotal scene. Juno's just a kid. She's like 16. And she's coming to the abortion clinic to have the, you know, the abortion. And there's a, one of her classmates is there, this goofy kid from school. And she's there you know, trying to dissuade people from having abortions. And she greets Juno in a very awkward moment, and Juno makes her way past her. And the girl finally just shouts out, your baby has fingernails. Remember that? And then Juno hears her, but she goes in the abortion clinic. And then the camera starts focusing in on everyone's fingernails. Everyone in the place is drumming their fingernails, and Juno is noticing all the fingernails until finally she's driven out of the abortion clinic. Um, and what struck me right away was it's very Newman-esque, that moment, is, you know, the kid there, I'm sure, could have offered an argument. And by the way, I find the arguments against abortion very convincing. They're very convincing arguments. But we're interested in a sense, not just in showing off convincing arguments. You know what I'm saying? How do you move people to assent? She might have argued till the cows come home and Juno never would have left the abortion clinic. But that little appeal, your baby has fingernails, that little appeal... Talk about real ascent, right? Real ascent. That appeal worked on her illative sense in a way that moved her finally to the ascent, I need to get out of this place. You know? Do you remember, too, this is a little while ago, Cardinal Egan of New York um, wrote a piece on, on a pro-life. And it was a very well-argued piece. It was full of the good, convincing arguments against abortion. But what he would do, the, arg- the article was printed along with a photograph of like a, I think a four-month-old uh, child or in the womb that looked, you know, utterly human, right? He would pause in the argument and say to his reader, look at that picture. Then he'd go back to arguing, right? Then he would pause and say, look at that picture, and then argue. <laughs> and then, for God's sake, look at that picture, See, and that struck me as a very Newman-esque way to get at this issue. We can throw arguments back and forth with one another, but a person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And if you're really interested in assent and not just offering uh, impressive arguments, you've got to use everything in your bag of tricks. And you've got to realize the psychology of people you're dealing with. It's the illative sense that you're appealing to. And so use all kinds of Methods, means, intuitions, images, experiences, as well as argument. And then you're appealing to the mind the way it actually works. That, I think, is the great contribution of Newman uh, from the Grammar of Ascent. And with that, I will stop. Thanks.
Thanks. We hope you enjoyed the second half of that talk from Bishop Barron on the grammar of ascent. We mentioned a couple times that Bishop Barron is going to be at the canonization of John Henry Newman, which is happening in just a couple weeks on October 13th. So be sure you follow Bishop Barron and Word on Fire on social media. We'll be sharing all sorts of great behind the scenes content from the canonization. Also, a few days later, he'll be in Oxford University speaking from the very pulpit that John Henry Newman preached at, at the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin. He'll be giving a talk on John Henry Newman and the new evangelization, which focuses primarily on this book, The Grammar of Ascent. So now that you've listened to these two episodes on The Grammar of Ascent, you'll know everything he's talking about. You'll recognize all the terms and key ideas. So uh, look forward to that talk. We'll be sharing everything through social media. And of course, we'll be updating all of you here on the podcast once Bishop Barron returns stateside. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Mm-hmm.